This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. I strive to make this podcast a safe and inclusive place for my listeners. If I have missed any content warnings, please let me know. Content warnings for this episode include strong language, mature themes, and harassment and intimidation by law enforcement. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 248. Hello, Metamorphs. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorecity.com. Each week, I share a piece of my fiction with you, available in audio for the first time anywhere. I'll also tell you what's new with my life and my writing. So let's get started, shall we? Here is this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 22 in my Metamore City erotic fantasy, Homecoming. If you're new to the show, don't start here. Go back to Episode 228 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Kate and John have had a busy couple of days in Kate's hometown of Bridger Heights. On their first night in town, Kate accidentally absorbed a part of John's essence, temporarily transforming her into a succubus. The two then embarked on a series of sexy adventures, having threesomes both with Kate's tailor, Henri, and Emily Bell, a college junior whom they met at the Bridger Heights homecoming game earlier that evening. During the latter encounter, they accidentally set off an orgy at the house party they were all attending. This turned out to have big consequences for Chase Tomley, Emily's closest friend and a student of Kate's father, Sam. Chase didn't know it, but he's an incubus, and being in the house with that much sexual energy caused him to complete his metamorphosis into a daedra. Chase lost control of a large chunk of his essence, triggering a lust storm, a wild manifestation of Suspira's power, which mindlessly drives people to have sex and then feeds on the results. Chase ended up coupling with a girl he likes, fellow Skyball Captain Janet Vickers. Chase was unable to control his newly awakened Daedric side and drained so much life energy from Janet that it threatened to kill her. Fortunately, Kate and John came to the rescue. Kate absorbed the lust storm, and then fed enough life energy back into Janet to stabilize her. Then she, John, Chase, and Emily retreated back to Kate's parents' house to figure out their next move. The next morning, Kate figured out how to control her essence-stealing powers and channeled a portion of that essence back into John, but she held on to enough of it to keep her horns, tail, and phallus, as well as her new succubus powers. She's still on vacation, after all, and she's having way too much fun to stop now. Besides, the rest of the essence she's holding rightly belongs to Chase, who is having a hard enough time as it is adjusting to the changes that have come over him. By holding on to half of his power, Kate is reducing the strength of his supernatural hunger, and hopefully making it easier for him to adapt to the change. At breakfast, they all sat down with Kate's parents, 
whom Kate and John had brought up to speed. They explained to Chase that he is an incubus, and that he will need to have sex regularly in order to survive. This is a hard thing for Chase to accept. He was raised in a very conservative sect of the follower religion, where he was taught that sex outside of marriage would put him at risk of eternal damnation. Emily pointed out that this incubus nature is something Chase was born with, and it makes no sense for any god to condemn him for something that isn't his fault. Kate's mother, Lisa, backed her up on this, saying that the mainline follower churches had come to the same determination nearly two centuries ago. The sect that Chase belongs to has never been big on teaching people church history. Somewhat reassured, Chase was receptive when John offered to teach him how to control his new powers, so he can feed on people without hurting them. But they need a human subject to help them. Emily volunteered, but Chase immediately shot this down. Deeply hurt and confused, Emily ran upstairs, followed by Kate. In their absence, Chase told John, Lisa, and Sam a disturbing story. Last summer, Emily was taking care of Chase when he was sick with a mysterious and debilitating illness, a side effect of the fact that Chase's Daedra half was starving, though neither of them knew it at the time. Chase's parents were out of town for the weekend, but Chase's condition had worsened, and both he and Emily were convinced he was going to die. Worried and frightened, Emily got drunk and persuaded Chase to drink with her, something he had never done before. With both of them under the influence of the alcohol, Emily pressured Chase into having sex with her, telling him that he was too pretty to die a virgin. Chase didn't want to do it, since he had been taught that extramarital sex was a sin, but he gave in because he loved Emily, and she seemed to want it so badly. As they did the deed, Chase's dormant Daedra side was finally able to absorb some life energy, and he immediately began feeling stronger and healthier. But the next morning, Emily remembered none of what had happened. Between her drinking binge and the feeding, she had suffered a complete memory blackout. Chase, still feeling deeply conflicted about the encounter, and oblivious to the fact that she had saved his life, has never told Emily the truth about what happened. Chase is racked with guilt and deeply confused. Was it Emily's fault, since she pressured him into sex and he never said yes? Or was it his fault, because she was too drunk to remember what happened? Kate's mother, Lisa, who has ghosts from her own past that she refuses to talk about, told Chase that there's probably no sense in trying to figure out who's more to blame for the unfortunate encounter. However, she insisted that Chase needs to tell Emily, because she's continuing to be hurt by what happened, even if she doesn't remember it. If Chase still loves Emily, if he wants to restore their relationship, then they both need to be able to apologize for their bad choices, and they both need to extend forgiveness. If he can't do that, then he needs to make a clean break with Emily, to cut her off and never see her again, just as Lisa completely cut off her family when she left for Metamore. Chase was still wrestling with all this when the doorbell rang. Leaving Chase with the Katanes, John went to the front door, where he found a team of Lothanasi agents surrounding the house. Evidently, word about last night's party had gotten out. John told the Katanes to stay with Chase, and to keep him away from the windows. 
When Kate appeared at the top of the stairs, John told her to stay back, too. Then he stepped out onto the front porch to face the Lightbringers. Homecoming A Tale of Metamore City Written and read by Chris Lester Chapter 22 The agent with the badge in her hand pursed her lips when John stepped outside. He focused on his own reflection in her sunglasses and inclined his head. Good morning, agent. She nodded fractionally in his direction. John H., she asked. She had a high, clear soprano voice, but there was no mistaking the steel behind it. He smiled faintly then and gave her a proper bow. You have the advantage of me, ma'am. Agent Nazarene Kishani. She took off her sunglasses and put them in her coat pocket. She had large brown eyes, caramel brown skin, and attractive features. She was also young for an agent in charge. John put her at no more than thirty. Her mouth made a thin, hard line as she regarded him. I'd like to ask you some questions about last night. May I come inside? John's smile turned apologetic. I'm sorry, Agent Kashani, but I'm only a guest here myself. But I'd be happy to speak with you out here for as long as you like. A cold wind blew across the yard, and Kashani flinched ever so slightly as the chill bit at her face. John, being a Daedra, was largely immune to the discomforts of the weather. He sat down on the front steps and spread his hands in invitation. Kashani was silent a moment, apparently gaming out strategies in her head. The Lothanasi were highly restricted in what they could do around mortal civilians. They had no authority to enter a human's house uninvited, unless they had a reasonable suspicion that someone's life was in danger. In practice, they often would go into a house to catch a Daedra who was fleeing arrest, which was why John was out here, denying them the excuse. At last, Kashani pulled out a pen and notepad and sat down on the step beside him. Her other agents kept their distance, their hands never straying far from the concealed sidearms in their shoulder rigs. Where were you last night between the hours of 11 p.m. and 2 a.m.? Kashani asked. I was at a party, John said. What kind of party? John smiled blandly. The kind with a lot of virile, attractive young people rubbing their bodies together. Kashani did not seem embarrassed by his bluntness. She checked something on her notepad. Was this at 1407 Lake Forest Drive? That sounds right, John said. I only looked at the address long enough to put it in my nav system. Kashani made a check mark on her pad. Were you invited to this party? I was a plus one, John said. I don't think there was a formal guest list. It seemed to be a pretty spontaneous thing. I see, Kashani said. Who asked you to come? A pretty young lady I met earlier in the evening. Name? John smiled wickedly. I'm sure she has one. It wasn't really important. The Lightbringer's lip curled in distaste. Just dropped in for a quick snack, then? 
That was the plan, John said, idly examining his fingernails. It turned out to be more of a buffet, if you take my meaning. Kashani's eyes narrowed. So you did start an orgy there. John snorted. <laughs> they didn't exactly need much encouragement. Everyone seemed very willing. Eager, even. He winked at her. I guess you don't normally get that much excitement out here. The agent ground her teeth and wrote something on her pad. Her pen scratched loudly against the paper, and the skin of her fingers turned pale where she gripped the pen. John smiled, blandly, and waited. Was anyone else there with you? Her tone turned acidic, besides the girl whose name wasn't important. My lover came along, John said. Maybe you've heard of her. Lieutenant Kate Katane, Special Investigations Division, MCPD. Got an Imperial Commendation for Valor from the Majestrix herself. A very fine, respectable, human citizen. Translation? She's none of your goddamned business, Lightbringer. Agent Kashani did not miss the subtext. No one else? Some people at the party reported to Succubus. Well, you know me, John drawled. I like to switch it up. He exerted a bit of effort, and his body changed back to Morgan's shape. Variety is the spice of life, darling, he said, imitating Morgan's voice. Surprisingly, that provoked a reaction. Kashani stared at him and edged a little further away. And then John caught the scent of her arousal. Well, then. He looked squarely into her eyes and bent Morgan's lips into a small, seductive smile. Not everyone enjoys the same flavors, you know. And I do try so hard to please. Kashani blushed. It didn't change her skin tone much with her dark complexion, but he felt the heat radiating from her face. After a moment, she tore her eyes away from his, looked back down at her notepad. She cleared her throat and shifted uncomfortably on the step. Change back, please. As you wish, darling. John resumed his usual human form. One last question, Mr. H. Do you know a Chase Tomley? John put on a thoughtful expression. He's that skyball captain for the Badgers, isn't he? Yes, Kate's father introduced us last night. Do you know where he is? John affected mild surprise. Why, Agent Kashani, why on earth would that be any concern of the Lightbringers? The agent glared at him. Because his car was at the house where you started that orgy last night. Oh, right, John thought, with a sinking feeling. The car... Kashani saw the fear in his eyes and pounced on it. What happened, Incubus? Did you get a little over-eager with one of your partners? Did his heart give out on you? That was an interpretation he hadn't been expecting. John swallowed hard. Agent Kashani, I assure you, the last time I saw Mr. Tomley, he was in perfect health. Kashani rose to her feet and took out her handcuffs. We'll see about that. Turn around. Hands. Now. Sighing, John turned around and crossed his wrists behind his back. The handcuffs tingled as they closed around his wrists, 
and he felt a flash of heat run up his arms. They were enchanted, probably designed to counter his superhuman strength. As she led him to the nearest van, the other agents closed in around them. John was careful to make no moves that could be interpreted as resistance. They strapped him into the backwards-facing bench in the rear of the vehicle, his arms still bound uncomfortably behind his back. A pair of manacles clapped around his ankles, holding his feet to the floor. They shut the rear doors, locked them, and moved to the front of the vehicle. John was left with a view of the Katane's front porch and little else. He saw when Kate appeared at the window, her hand gripping the fur on Miko's back. Her eyes went wide with fear, then narrowed again in anger. She reached for the door handle. John met her eyes, then shook his head vigorously. Don't do it, he thought, and desperately wished that one or both of them were telepathic. The door handle rotated through a quarter turn, then stopped. Kate waited, watching him closely. John carefully mouthed the words, Protect Chase. Kate looked stricken. She squeezed her eyes shut, knocked her fist against the wall in evident frustration. After a moment, her eyes met his again, and she mouthed back, I love you. I love you too, John whispered. Then the van's lift turbines spooled to life, and the lightbringers took him away. The nearest Lothanasi field office was thirty minutes from Bridger Heights, on the southwest side of the Allentown suburbs. A squat, nondescript building of brown brick and darkened glass, it sat in the heart of an office park, surrounded by similarly uninspiring architecture. A few old maple trees and scattered bushes were the lot's only ornamentation. The driver pulled them into the attached garage, which had four wide, roll-up doors like a fire station. The door rolled shut behind them, and then they pulled him out, relieved him of his wallet, keys, and phone, and took him to the holding cells. The Lightbringer's jail was a single long corridor, lined with fully enclosed rooms containing four bunk beds each. The doors were heavy steel and equipped with biometric scanner locks, and the front wall of each cell was reinforced glass, with steel bars behind it. Unsurprisingly, given how far out in the provinces they were, the jail did not have many occupants. John passed one cell containing a vampire, lying motionless on his cot with his arms crossed over his chest. Another held a disheveled leprechaun, who was snoring loudly, and seemed to be sleeping off last night's bender. There was also a tiny cell, roughly one-fifth human scale, which housed three irritable-looking pixies. The fairies jeered and swore at the agents in their own language as they went past. Apart from that, though, the place was empty. Agent Kashani led John to the last door at the end of the hall, several cells away from any of the other occupants. Unlike the others, this cell had no windows, only a single viewport with a sliding metal plate. Another slot at the bottom of the door allowed food trays to be passed through without opening the cell. Kashani put her hand on the scanner, the bolt slid back, and she pulled the door open. John noticed that both the door and the walls around it were at least ten centimeters thick. 
The agent behind him removed John's handcuffs, then shoved him roughly inside. The room was dark, but that was no hindrance to him. He took in the single narrow bed along the left wall, the sink and toilet on the right, and the bare, hard floor between them. There was nothing else. John turned around and looked at Kashani, spreading his hands. Can I at least get a book or something? Expressionless, Kashani shut the door in his face. With no light, no windows, and nothing to do, John quickly lost all sense of the passage of time. He paced the floor of his cell, eight steps from the door to the opposite wall, eight steps back again, over and over. He counted the footsteps, trying to crowd out his anxieties with brute force monotony. Around the time he hit 5,000, he realized it wasn't working, and he was striding back and forth so fast that he was actually panting with the exertion. Or maybe I'm just hyperventilating. He had promised himself he would never end up here, locked in a cage at the tender mercies of the Lothanasi. As long as he played by the rules, kept a low profile, and didn't give them an excuse— he could go on living his life. At times, he could almost forget that a band of paramilitary zealots could kill him pretty much with impunity. All it would take was one agent having one bad day, catching him in the wrong place at the wrong time. He had sworn he would never let it happen. Instead, he'd stepped out the door and delivered himself gift-wrapped into their waiting hands. And for what? One stupid kid, so brainwashed and full of self-hatred that he'd probably starve himself to death anyway, unless he took a shortcut with a bullet, or a blade, or a bottle of pills. Why the fuck are you doing this? he asked himself. The only reason they're holding you is because they think you killed the kid. Just tell them the truth. Then it'll be their problem and you and Kate can go home. Shit, maybe they'll even help him learn to control his powers. They don't want an out-of-control incubus on the loose any more than you do. If this were Metamore, he might have considered it. Field Commander Janus Starson was a badass, a hard-ass, a tight-ass, and occasionally just an ass, but John was pretty sure he would help Chase if he could. Even if his sense of honor didn't demand it, he'd probably do it as a favor to Kate but they were a long way from Metamore, and Janus didn't have any authority here. It would be Agent Kashani's call, and so far the only thing John knew about her was that she found Morgan attractive. He couldn't risk turning Chase over to her without knowing how she'd react. And besides, every time John thought about Chase, he imagined his kids in this situation. What if Jonathan and Jeanette were the ones in trouble? and some other incubus were being held in their place, what would John want him to do for them? Keep his damned mouth shut, that's what. He stopped pacing and lay down on the cot, staring up at the ceiling of the darkened cell. There were cameras up there, hidden behind domes of glass. Probably infrared, he supposed. He wondered if Kashani was in the control room right now, watching him stew. He wondered what Kate was doing. He had no doubt that she'd be trying to get him released, but as long as Chase remained in hiding, her options would be limited. Her rapport with Janus, notwithstanding, 
Lightbringers and cops tended to rub each other the wrong way, and the fact that Kate was currently sporting horns and a tail would not help matters. Kate also had a tendency to take drastic action when things weren't going her way, and that might make the situation even worse. Be smart, love, he thought. We'll get through this. Somehow. He must have dozed off at some point, because the sound of the bolt sliding back startled him awake. The lights in the ceiling came on, and Agent Kashani came in, carrying a serving tray. John saw two more lightbringers waiting outside, their guns and stun wands hanging openly on their belts. They shut the door behind her, and the bolt slid back into place. John sat up on the bed. He affected a slow, insouciant smile. Well, well. Come to see me in person, Agent Kashani? Now I know why you put me in solitary. How can I please you? The Lightbringer regarded him for a moment in silence, her dark eyes unreadable. John tried examining her with his aura sight, but she was completely closed off to him. He wondered if that was just iron self-control, or if she had some sort of magical defenses. Lightbringers often did. I thought you might be hungry, she said at last. Always, John assured her. Your human side, I mean. She set down the tray at the foot of the bed, then took two steps back and fell into a parade rest. John looked at the tray. There was a deli sandwich, wrapped in paper and sliced in half, a bag of potato chips, a pickle spear, and a bottle of water. There was also, to John's surprise, a book a small, dog-eared paperback, one that had obviously been read many times. He picked up the book and examined the cover. It had the look of a torrid romance novel, with a muscular and powerful-looking woman holding a slender, more petite woman up against a wall. The bigger woman had a leather cord stretched tight between her hands, and a look of blatant lust in her eyes. The smaller woman looked submissive and ready to be ravished. The title of the book read, Honor Bound. He raised his eyebrows at Kashani. And a menu, too? How thoughtful. I take it this is a favorite of yours? Kashani shrugged, unruffled. It was that or my gun magazines, she said, blandly. You did say you had flexible tastes. John chuckled in spite of himself. Indeed I do. This should be very interesting reading. Thank you. He set the book aside and took a bite of the sandwich. It was nothing to write home about, but there was nothing objectionable about it either. He ate for a few minutes in silence, and ignored the fact that Kishani was watching him. She let him finish half of the sandwich and open the bag of chips before she spoke again. So I read your file this morning, she said in a conversational tone. You have an interesting story. Fairly unusual for a priest of hedonism. Well, I had an unusual start in life, John said breezily. Disgraced son of a count and all, going from the penthouse to the gutter. It gives you a sense of perspective on things. I'm sure. She leaned back against the wall opposite him, studying him the way she might a particularly odd-looking insect. There's no record of you having any problems controlling your essence. John inclined his head in a mock bow. Thank you. 
I do try to be a civilized monster. All things considered, it's easier to feed if word gets around that I'm a source of pleasant memories, not frightening ones. He let his smile turn wicked. And I have many satisfied customers. I believe you, Kishani said, still not rising to the bait. She cocked her head to one side. Which is what makes this incident so strange. Because I have descriptions from several witnesses of what sounds like a lust storm. Warning bells started to chime in the back of John's mind. He tried not to let it show on his face. Did they? Well, you know how unreliable witnesses can be. Not as unreliable as Daedra, she said dryly. John smiled at her, close-lipped, and took another bite of his sandwich. Kashani pushed off the wall and slowly paced the length of the floor, back and forth. She paused by the sink and examined herself for a moment in the polished steel mirror. There's still no word on Chase Tomley, she said, her tone low and subdued. His mother has called the police five times already. They've swept the grounds of the house, checked all the hospitals and morgues in a twenty-click radius. Nothing. She met his eyes in the mirror. Do you remember seeing him at the party? I know you'd only just met him earlier that evening, but anything you can tell us might help. John was surprised at the change in tone. Now that I think about it, I did speak to him briefly at the party. I remember he wasn't drinking, and I thought that was odd for a man his age. Kashani turned around and braced herself against the sink. Do you remember what you talked about? John shrugged. There was a girl he was interested in. I told him to go ask her for a dance. Was this the same girl who invited you to the party? No, it was the other Skyball captain. Tall Arambian girl. Long braids. Very pretty. Janet Vickers? That sounds right, John said, though he didn't let himself sound too sure. Kashani's eyes narrowed slightly. Did you feed on her, too? He made a show of thinking hard, then threw up his hands. Honestly, who can say? There were so many delicious people there. One loses track of which body parts belong to which names after a while. Kashani let out an exasperated sigh and stared up at the ceiling, as if pleading with the gods for patience. All right, she said at last. You said the last time you saw Chase Tomley he was in perfect health. She put air quotes around the words. What was he doing when you saw him? John grinned. I believe he was doing Miss Vickers. Kashani rolled her eyes, and John shrugged again. I left shortly after that. Like any star performer, the key is to leave the audience wanting more. He cocked his head, mirroring her earlier speculative look. Does this mean you believe me now? Kashani was silent a moment before answering. I believe you didn't screw up and kill Tomley by accident. Your file proves that you know how to handle yourself. She eyed him directly, crossing her arms over her slim chest. I also believe that you know more than you're telling me. John cocked an eyebrow. Oh? She stalked quickly over to him then, knelt on the edge of the bed so she could look him in the eyes. Her voice came out in a low, intense rush. 
You've been playing to the incubus stereotype from the moment you walked out of that house. The carefree, sybaritic hedonist thinking only of his own appetites. Well, I think it's bullshit. John snorted. And upon what do you base this brilliant deduction, Agent Kashani? Your long years of field experience? Your extensive knowledge of incubi? She narrowed her eyes and smiled at him, a predatory expression. My extensive knowledge of women. I did a little research on your lover, Lieutenant Katane. You've been partnered with her for most of a year now. There's no way she'd still be with you if you were the selfish piece of shit you're pretending to be. And, she added, poking him in the chest with one finger, there's no way you'd still be with her, because you'd have gotten bored by now. John tried to hide his surprise, schooling his face back to neutrality. He wasn't good enough. Kashani had scored a point on him, and she knew it. She smiled triumphantly and dropped her voice low. You're trying to make me so disgusted with you that I won't notice you're hiding something. Well, it's not working, friend, and I'm going to find out what it is. She got off the bed, straightened, and gave him an ironic bow. Enjoy the book. If you decide you want to talk, you know where to find me. She strode over to the door and knocked three times. The viewport slid open and the guards outside unlocked the door and let her out. This time, she left the lights on for him. And that's the end of Chapter 22. Come back next time, when John faces more questions from Agent Kashani, and gets an unexpected message from Kate. Now it's time to check in on my writing endeavors. Here's your weekly writing report. This update covers the week of August 8th through August 14th. I wrote 4,348 words this week, over the course of 5.75 hours, for an average writing speed of 756 words per hour. As of Friday night, I've gone 119 days without breaking my chain. I'll be honest, I didn't get as much writing done this week as I wanted to. I've been sort of burning the candle at both ends lately, and shorting myself on sleep, and I think this week it caught up with me. There were a couple of times when I sat down to write and just found myself completely worn out and unable to focus. I ended up working ahead on the next few recording scripts so that I could at least keep my chain going, but I only got about 2,000 words done on Honor Bound. I've just finished Chapter 20, and the manuscript is a hair over 50,000 words. Over on the Patreon feed, we have a new patron this week. Please welcome Autumn. In addition, Steve and Christopher just increased their monthly pledges from $1 to $3. That means they now get access to the first draft of Honor Bound as I'm writing it. I'm putting up one chapter a week usually between 2,000 and 4,000 words, and it's been great to see people's reactions as the story unfolds. Patrons at the $3 level get other perks, too, like cover reveals, character bios, and other behind-the-scenes content. Plus, all patrons get access to exclusive bonus art, from talented Metamore City artists like Carol Foote. 
Carol is hard at work on our next piece, the sixth and final piece of artwork for a wizard family solstice. Look for that piece to be released very soon, possibly even by the time you hear this episode. If you like this show and want to help me keep making it, becoming a patron is the very best way to support me. Over 90% of what you pledge goes directly to me, and the ongoing commitment helps me to budget for expenses like podcast distribution, web hosting, and upgrades to the studio. To get started, go to patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. Take a look at the donation tiers and choose the one that's right for you. And if you're already a patron, thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255-082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook, and our Discord server is Metamore City. I'm there pretty often, so come say hi. If you like this show, please consider leaving a review at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or Podchaser.com. It really helps people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fresh new fiction. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2019 and 2020 by Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.